0: Friends, open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. This morning we are continuing our series looking at the earthly ministry of Jesus, the power and preaching of Jesus as it's presented to us in Luke's Gospel. And I'll read in chapter 5, beginning in verse 27 through the end of the chapter. And after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes "'grumbled at his disciples, saying, "'Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners?' "'And Jesus answered them, "'Those who are well have no need of a physician, "'but those who are sick. "'I have not come to call the righteous, "'but sinners to repentance.' "'And they said to him, "'The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, "'and so the disciples of the Pharisees, "'but yours eat and drink.' And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fasts while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus' ministry was scandalous. Now we know a thing or two about that in these parts. Uh, we live on the doorstep of Washington, D.C., the epicenter of global political scandal. Uh, this town that we have the honor of living near produces and perpetuates scandal like few others. The Biden laptop, the Trump phone call. This week, it's, it's a senator indicted on corruption charges, and I'm sure there will be something next week. And you know the cycle, right? Salacious headlines, polarized press conferences. Media has a heyday because these stories make people angry and anger sells. Now, Jesus himself never acted in an underhanded way. But scandals are never about just what happened, they're about what people perceive. So, the definition of scandal uh, that I found in the dictionary says it's an action or event regarded as morally or legally wrong, and causing general public outrage. Now, by that definition, the ministry of Jesus most definitely qualifies as scandalous. Uh, Luke chapters 5 and 6 recount several scenarios in the ministry of Jesus that caused outrage. They're like stories that you might scroll through in your news feed. And it's one controversial headline after the next in Luke chapters 5 and 6. Now let me pause and ask you, when you think about the ministry of Jesus, those of you who are gathered here today, do you you consider his his ministry as being at all shocking? Is there anything about it that's somewhat audacious to you? I think one of the dangers of uh, being under God's word time and time again, which of course is wonderful, but the danger is that we can grow familiar And it can lose a bit of its its edge to us. The shock factor wears off after a while. But what Luke recounts here in our text this morning is how people were outraged by Jesus' grace. They were outraged by it. The, The headline over today's story and the title of today's sermon is Scandalous Grace. Scandalous Grace. Now, by gracious, I mean how frequently and intensely Jesus showed people unmerited favor. He will do it again and again and again. One author, Jerry Bridges, points out that this is not only unmerited favor, it is demerited favor. Uh, It's not only favor and blessing and and kindness that hasn't been deserved, it's ill-deserved. And as Jesus lives and ministers to people, he uh, will frequently drive other people nuts. And we'll see it in this passage because he shows such great favor to people who were so greatly ill-deserving of it. Luke, uh, Luke's account presents this scandalous grace in our passage this morning in, in four scenes where the grace of Jesus is a source of controversy. And first, it's a controversial calling. A controversial calling. Verse 27 says, After this, Jesus went out, and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now to see how audacious this calling is, we we need to know a little something about tax collectors in Jesus' day. Uh, Galilee, where Jesus is ministering at this point, has been occupied by Rome and made part of the Roman Empire. And so the Roman government collected taxes there. Surprise, surprise, right? Uh, But not only did the Romans collect taxes there, uh, they collected tolls. Uh, This area was right on the border of two provinces, and so there would have been a customs uh, type of tax as people traveled in between and met in Galilee. Now, the way they did this is Romans would find local people who knew the area and the community to do the collecting. These uh, guys would be given some muscle from the Roman army to help enforce, and they would have been allowed to not only collect the tax, but to collect more on top of it in order to enrich themselves. This is basically sanctioned extortion. And it is incredibly lucrative for the tax collectors. Now, as you can imagine, if we had people like that in our day, they are almost universally despised. Uh, Common people would have dealt with them all the time. And they would have had this feeling that these people are getting rich off my back. Bear with me, these tax collectors are the original rich men north of Richmond. Uh, All the working class people hate these guys. Business people hated them because they were constantly cutting into their profits. So just imagine, we heard about Peter, James, and John and their fishing business earlier. They might have been sitting on the docks thinking, you know, we'd love to get this huge catch over to this market in the next town over, but if we do, we gotta go past the tax booth. And how much is he gonna get us for this time? It would have been unreliable and questionable and he would have calculated that in his business decisions. Politicians and zealots in Israel hated them because they were in league with their oppressors. They'd signed up to to be in partnership with the Romans, and so they were seen as corrupt and and working for the wrong side. Religious leaders despised them because their associations with the Gentiles, on top of all these other things, made them ceremonially unclean, made them religiously unclean and, and unholy. And even the Romans viewed them as a kind of necessary evil. Kind of the thing that was necessary for them to get what they needed to get. The only times in Scripture we ever see uh, them having a good time is when they're with other tax collectors. As if the the circle of people who were willing to to be around these guys was pretty small. This is, you could think of it as... (laughs) Uh, uh, mob bosses and IRS agents and toll booth operators all wrapped up into one. And one day, a tax collector named Levi is just sitting at his booth doing his slimy job and Jesus walks up and says, follow me. Now, this is no doubt a controversial calling. It's still a controversial calling. I think, my sense is that we're more comfortable with the idea that Jesus ministers to the sick. Or that he ministers to the outcast. That he ministers to the oppressed. But what do we think when he ministers to the oppressor? But we're happy to have a Savior who's compassionate to the unclean leper and the paralyzed man. It's wonderful. But here, Jesus calls a man who is rich, powerful, and corrupt. This is not the kind of guy uh, you see, uh, this is the kind of guy you want to see pay for his crimes before he gets his grace. You want to see him bear some consequences before Jesus just comes and sets him free. But that's not how Jesus operates. He calls people from all walks of life. His grace isn't off limits to any kind of person. The only prerequisite for his grace is an awareness that you need it. And it would seem that in this moment, Levi became aware of that need. Friends, this is just as true for us in our day as it was for Levi in his. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6 as he paints a picture of the wide variety of people that Christ calls. He says this, Isn't it true? Such were some of us. But we have been called by the boundless grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christian, whether you were the leper or the tax, tax collector, your calling to Christ is all of grace. And we see that in all of its kind of controversial glory as Jesus calls this tax collector. And just like him, we brought nothing to him, We bring nothing to Jesus as we follow him except reason that we ought to not be there. But he comes to us in mercy, and Jesus comes to us in grace, and he bestows his kindness on us. Friends, isn't it good just every now and then to stop and marvel at the grace of God in your calling? Christian, if you've turned to Jesus, if you belong to Jesus this morning, you belong to him but by his grace whether you got there from a life of licentiousness or a life of corruption or a life of oppression it also means that we can now then as those who've received this gracious calling this controversial calling now extend it to others isn't it true maybe that as as we look out and survey man who might be god god be calling into his kingdom You can sort of size people up and, man, think, this guy is so close. I mean, he's just almost there. He seems so much like one of us. He just just needs to get the Jesus piece right. But Jesus shows us here that there's nothing we bring. Not just the ones who seem close to being in the kingdom, but the ones who seem the farthest away are the ones he calls. If that's you, I just want we'll to stop for a minute. If you're here and you're thinking, I, that's me. There's got to be one or two of us in the room right now who are thinking, I'm as far away from Jesus as anybody could be. But you are exactly the kind of person Jesus loves to call. And dare I say, he's doing it right now. He's telling you, follow me. Amen. But Jesus not only offers this controversial calling, he, he then demonstrates the the gracious impact of that calling in Levi's response in verse 28. Luke gives it to us in just eight words. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Jesus said, follow me to the tax collector, and he left everything and followed him. When Jesus speaks, stuff happens. His calling does things. And when he said, follow me to Levi, man, did stuff happen. This greedy, swindling man leaves all that behind, stands up from his desk of corruption and follows Jesus. And Luke wants us to see here, he points out a couple of details that show us that this cost him something. All that ill-gotten gain Is left behind. All that protection from the Roman government gone. Now, when that happens, you might expect Levi then to go uh, back to his house as fast as he can and build a wall around the place so everybody in town that hates him doesn't come and get him. But he doesn't do that. Look at what it says in verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others. Reclining at table with them. Apparently, what Levi had left behind in his heart was nothing in comparison to what he just gained. So he quits his job and he throws a party. And the people who come to this party are the other guys at work, Uh, it's the tax collectors he works with, and Jesus. Can you imagine? You ever had a going-away lunch at your job? You know, somebody retires or somebody moves on to another position and and folks get together and just say farewell and and thank them. This is like a a going-away lunch with the mob on one hand and Jesus and the disciples on the other. That's who's come together now under this roof. Is it getting a little more controversial? (laughs) A little more scandalous? It should be because when people see this, they've got questions. They've got questions. And so the next two scenes retell a Q&A session that Jesus has with these people who have questions. Now, their questions are really thinly veiled accusations. But Jesus very, I think, patiently but directly, clearly answers those questions. And the first question is about Jesus' controversial company. That's point two: first, controversial calling. Point two, controversial company. Verse 30, it says, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now remember, Levi's going away party here includes a cast of characters who also, like he had, supported Rome's political oppression of Israel. They're helping fund it. And by implication, Roman, Rome's religious paganism. And yet in this home, with this feast, Jesus is practically the guest of honor. The Pharisees are flabbergasted. They're pick your intense word. I mean, they are enraged, it would seem. They're, they're grumbling at Jesus' disciples. They're, they're pulling them off to the side and they're They're grumbling. They're complaining and they're letting them know. They're giving them an earful and they're saying, why does, why does he do this? Why do you do this? These Pharisees are concerned with lines of demarcation. They are concerned he's giving the wrong impression. This goes against the work that they do every day to maintain a sense of religious purity. These are people who work hard to, to maintain clear distinctions from Rome's paganism. And the corruption that marks these people who violate God's commands in some b- such bold ways. And so when Jesus and his disciples just waltz in and feast and eat with these people in a tax collector's house, it's just mind-boggling to them. And they, they grumble about it to Jesus' disciples. So... Jesus addresses their concern in verse 31. I love, they talk to the disciples, but Jesus answers their question. Uh, Maybe the disciples didn't know what to say. But Jesus answered them, verse 31, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees are concerned with lines of demarcation. Jesus is concerned with getting help to people who need it. Now, it's important to note: Jesus is not saying, you know, he's just indiscriminately uh, chilling with sinners. Uh, He's not there because he likes the the steak that's on the grill or the kind of music they play. Uh, He's not just kind of hanging. He's there because these people need help, and he's the one who can help. He is the great physician. And he says in verse 32 that he's called, he's come to call them to repentance. So Jesus is not comforting them in their sin. He's calling them out of it. But he's not afraid to get close in order to do so. And that's the point. Jesus moves towards sinners, not away from them. Friends, someone here has been avoiding Jesus because of their sin. Maybe you're a Christian and your sin has you so ashamed that you're just avoiding Jesus. Prayer, opening your Bible is just unthinkable. Maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian, but you've been considering it and you think that the way relationship with Jesus works is that you get your act together first and then let them know you're ready. You know, you kind of go and, and you get your life together and, and you stop doing the things that you know you probably ought to stop, stop doing and then you go to him, but, but you uh, avoid him in the meantime. Maybe you'll listen to things about him, but you won't talk to him. If that's you, you need to hear this. Avoiding Jesus because you're a sinner is like avoiding the doctor because you're sick. Avoiding Jesus because you're a sinner is like avoiding the doctor because you're sick. Paul says in 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You are why he's here. That's his whole purpose. So when a sinner comes to Jesus, they are doing exactly what he's called them to do. When you wrestle with sin, Christian, turn to Christ quickly. When you delay between conviction of sin and turning to Jesus, you make it so much worse. He's the one who heals. He's the one who forgives. He's the one who restores. He's the one who fills you with newness of life by the power of his Holy Spirit. Turn to Christ quickly. He came into the world to save sinners. When you experience his grace, it changes you. But grace comes first, then change, not the other way around. And we see the the scandalous effect of that grace in the next section. That was a a controversial company. Now Jesus speaks to a controversial countenance. Verse 33, they replied, they said to him back, uh, well, what about these other people? The, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, Jesus, eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. The conflict now has moved from Jesus' company, his associations, who he's around, to what those people do. And the, the conflict is between fasting and feasting. The Pharisees had adopted the practice of fasting twice a week. This is fleshed out further in the parable in Luke 18 of the tax collector and the Pharisee. A lot of parallels. Jesus talks about the Pharisee who'd gone to the temple to pray. And he talks about all these wonderful things he does and, and one of the things in the long list of things that he's doing so righteously is I fast twice a week. And then he looks over and says, oh, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. And you remember the tax collector beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But what this reveals is that this practice that the Pharisees had adopted had led to self-righteousness. And that's what's creating this conflict in this moment. And Jesus has some things to teach us about fasting here. Uh, Jesus' goal is not to give us a lesson on fasting. He's responding to a question about fasting, and then he sort of redirects it. But while we're here, there are some things that are instructive as we consider that spiritual discipline of fasting. I think it's helpful to note Jesus doesn't do away with fasting. He acknowledges there'll be a time later when it may be appropriate for his disciples to fast. But Jesus also does not mandate fasting or regulate fasting in this passage. So, what does that mean for us? It means you're not required to fast and you're not forbidden from fasting, it means you are free to fast. So, when Lent rolls around this spring, you don't have to give anything up at all if you don't choose to, Um, and you are free to fast if you want to do so. The important thing is that you don't look down on people who choose to fast and don't demand that others fast if they don't want to. You're not required, you're not forbidden, you're free. Now, Jesus goes in, and through his response, he is addressing the Pharisees' Uh, mishandling of the Old Testament. As I said, they they have developed this practice, this tradition of fasting twice a week. But the Old Testament law actually did not instruct God's people to do that. Uh, It instructed them to fast on the Day of Atonement, perhaps on a couple of other days leading up to feast days. Um, But the Pharisees had come in and, and added to it and were now questioning the sincerity of the the faith and discipleship of others based on a tradition that they had established, not God. And Jesus will have none of it. Think of it this way. You can think of the word of God like a line, a line that God establishes. At times, we are tempted to go above the line. We're tempted to to say more and call people to more and, and imply that God has said more than he actually has said. And that's legalism, and that's what the Pharisees are so often guilty of. It's also possible for us to go below the line, to, to say less than what God has said, to, to set the standard not at what God has set it at, and that is to lead ourselves and others into licentiousness. The Pharisees have gone above the line. Jesus is calling tax collectors, people who've gone below the line, to repent And he's also calling these self-righteous Pharisees who've gone above the line to repent. We need to see that Jesus does not acquiesce to the demands of the self-righteous. When they question Jesus on the basis of their line, Jesus calls them back to God's line. Friends, we all need to beware, on occasion, the inner Pharisee. Let's call him, for the sake of conversation, Phil the Pharisee. Sorry, everybody, named Phil. All of us have a little bit of Phil the Pharisee living in there. Some, some of our Phil the Pharisees a little bigger than others. Uh, some of them are, are just pointed at particular issues and not so much others. But we all have this tendency to self-righteousness in di- different areas of our lives. We can go around assessing people based on the standards we've set not God. Now, no doubt, God has standards. Again, as I said, Jesus is not just indiscriminately hanging out with sinners, sort of affirming all the things that they've been doing. He is calling them to repentance. But in the same way that God does not accommodate our sin, He also does not accommodate our self-righteousness. So if you are questioning the sincerity of other believers, based on your standards rather than God's. I want to warn you, that's the voice of Phil the Pharisee. Tell him no. And in the same way Jesus calls the sinner to repentance, he calls the Pharisee to repent of his pride and pursue humility. God is so clear, he opposes the proud. But he gives grace, scandalous grace, to the humble. He reinforces here an important principle, not only about self-righteousness and repentance, but he says in reply to their their question about sort of the appropriateness of feasting is what they're getting at. You know, hey, uh, Jesus, it seems like this fasting would be more appropriate. And in, in Jesus' response, he indicates, well, fasting is associated with mourning. It's something we do when we're grieved. It's something we do when we are desperate for God's presence because we don't sense it or aren't experiencing it. And he says the disciples' countenance is determined by their proximity to Jesus. In other words, disciples of Jesus fasting while Jesus is with them is like guests at a wedding reception who were fasting during the reception. It's inappropriate given the context. And and what determines what is or isn't appropriate is a person's proximity to Jesus. Now, as we think about that today, of course, we have the presence of Christ with us by the Holy Spirit. And so we can ask, is it ever appropriate? Well, of course, in one sense, uh, God is omnipresent. He's always with us. He's everywhere. He never leaves us or forsakes us. But isn't it true, friend, that as we go through life, there are times when we sense and experience the presence of God and times when we struggle to. When Scripture talks about the presence of God, uh, it's, of course, not saying that at times God is absent entirely and then all of a sudden becomes present. It's talking about the manifestation of God's presence in such a way that it is sensed and experienced by his people. And one of the things that we have the the joy of experiencing as the people of God is not just the concept of God's omnipresence, but the reality of his presence in our hearts. It has an effect on us. That's why the psalmist can say, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Jesus is pointing out that the nearness of Jesus brings his disciples joy, brings his disciples gladness in such a way that fasting in a moment like that would be missing the point. In our lament and in our pain, we pray things like, God, come near to me. And we're right to do that. We're right to pray things like, comfort me with your presence. God is so kind and good to give us prayers in his word to pray when we don't sense his presence at all. When we, in fact, question it, struggle, doubt it in light of what we're experiencing. But one of the things we appeal to him for is, oh God, help me know your presence. Be near to me Jesus is near to his disciples in this story in a physical very apparent way Jesus said when I go it'll actually be all the better for you because then I will be near to you by my spirit so now as the people of God who have the infilling of the Holy Spirit we don't have to assess our presence to Jesus by whether we're in the same room about whether we're all at Levi's house uh, when Jesus just so happens to be at Levi's house. Jesus, uh, in his resurrection, sent the Holy Spirit and it now fills the hearts of all of his people. We have his indwelling presence with us. And as we draw near to him and experience the goodness of his nearness, it affects us with joy and gladness. And friends, I want to be uh, careful here. When we talk about the joy of God, I'm not talking about coming to church and you're grumpy in the car and you're grumpy on the sidewalk and then you walk across the threshold and all of a sudden, hey, and you just sort of plaster on this smile and fake it and just sort of walk through pretending that you're something you're not. What we're talking about is a cultivation of communion with Christ that fills the hearts of Christ's people with joy. And that's something we can experience. And so my question for us today is, are you experiencing the presence of Jesus in your life? Are you enjoying his fellowship? Can you say with the hymn writer that he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own? And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. I pray that you might see Christ's gracious disposition to sinners, his presence, his nearness to us, even in our sin, that you would experience more of the joy of that fellowship. Now, that fellowship is possible because of what Christ says in point four, which has to do with a controversial change. We've been talking about controversial countenance, now a controversial change. He closes this Q&A session with the Pharisees with a story. Uh, he tells them a parable, starting in verse 36. And it's, it's got two parts, both making the same point. Jesus wants to drive his point home, and so he goes to their home. In a sense, he goes to the laundry room and he goes to the kitchen. He says, imagine you're taking a piece of cloth, and it's brand new, and you sew it onto an old one, then you start wearing it. An experience most of the people in his hearing would have had. And he says, look, what's the fact? It it, it tears both. In the same way, he talks about this whole issue of of wine and and wineskins. People at the time would have taken animal skins and sort of sewn them up and, and filled them with wine. And over time, as that skin was used, it would become brittle and it could easily break. And new wines would would give off gases, and they would easily, uh, you know, extend a new wine skin. But man, if you put that new wine in an old wine skin, it's just going to shatter it. And so then you lose the usefulness of the skin, and you lose the wine. Jesus draws from these two uh, uh, experiences in home life to kind of step back and make this point. Look, uh, you, you can't just kind of blend old and new together. Or you lose them both. Now the question for us is, well, Jesus, what's old and what's new? What are you talking about that's incompatible? Well, I think in the context, given his engagement with the Pharisees, what he's talking about is these Pharisaical traditions that have been established and that they were enforcing on the people of God and even daring to try to enforce on Jesus. And Jesus is is refusing to acquiesce to those old traditions. Now, to be clear, he's not throwing out all of the Old Testament. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. He himself is what the Old Testament has been anticipating and pointing to. But he also affirms here what he is bringing about is something new. He is establishing a new covenant as the one who's the the true and better Moses, and the true and better David, and the true and better Abraham, the true and better Israel, Jesus is now inaugurating a new covenant, where people become the people of God, not by association with a nation, but through union with a person. You don't become part of the people of God as of this point, by joining yourself to Israel. You become part of the people of God by joining yourself to Christ. And that that union has no ethnic or political boundaries. Jesus is bringing about something new. Now, as far as what that means for us, we are experiencing the goodness of that new covenant. And Jesus is not saying new is just better. In fact, he says you're going to be tempted to think old is better. So we don't quote this verse just to sort of say new is good and we should just change things up all the time. No, what we're affirming when we hear this parable and put our trust in Christ Is that we are now united with him as his people through the new covenant that he's inaugurated. And it's that union, it's that faith that makes the companionship and the fellowship that he's been talking about possible. So let me bring all that together. Christ has now called you his own, not through your your obedience to the law, but through your faith in him. And that happens when he calls you by his grace when he associates with you by his grace, and when he changes your countenance by his presence. Friends, we experience the good of Christ's scandalous grace when we walk in fellowship with him, when we turn to him quickly, when we experience his newness of life. One author I think captures this so well. He says, God does not simply want to acquit sinners, he wants to feast with them. He does not merely endure us on the outskirts of His presence. He invites us to sit at table, to laugh and share, to talk and eat. My favorite is from C.S. Lewis in "The Weight of Glory." He says, "To please God, to be a real ingredient in divine happiness." to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Christ associates with sinners, and by his grace he associates with us. He loves you, Christian, and he saved you from your sin by his blood. Let's walk in that fellowship together. Father, we are so grateful for the lavish grace of Jesus on us. And Lord, I pray that you would help those among us who are your disciples to enjoy the sweetness of fellowship with him that he made possible through the blood of his cross. And Lord, I pray for those who you are calling for the first time today. God, who you're calling to repentance that they might enjoy that same fellowship with Jesus. God, would you not let them silence your voice, but respond even now in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name.